Welcome to Keep Taking Ground, the saxophone podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Ryan, and we're back with season number two. Uh, again, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone that uh, followed the pages, um, reached out to me, and just shared kind words about um, how you enjoyed season one. Um, the support was uh, really overwhelming. And I want to encourage you to keep doing that, keep sharing the episodes, and don't forget to subscribe. Um, I'm excited to bring you 10 new conversations this season. And if you're new to the podcast, uh, welcome. And uh, you could expect conversations with award-winning and in-demand saxophonists from around the world and across jazz and contemporary styles. Well, I believe that award-winning and in-demand sax saxophonists know something that the rest of us don't yet know. And that's what I'm curious about. So I really want to create a resource that would help you keep taking ground in your personal, professional, musical, and creative journeys and just connect the saxophone community worldwide. Without further ado, today's guest is saxophonist, composer, producer, educator, and, and a curator. He's been a formidable force on the international music scene as a leader of his own ensembles, as well as a guest with many acclaimed groups for the past 37 years. He's highly regarded for his insightful and innovative approach to composition and performance. He's an, he's an inspired voice among the ranks of improvising musicians. He's earned numerous awards and critical acclaim for his records, um, recorded works, and passionate live appearances and has been recognized by the New York Times as one of the most provocative musical thinkers of his generation. It's my pleasure to welcome the one and only Greg Osby to the podcast. Greg, how are you doing? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure, man. No, on season one of the podcast, I had Louis Dennis, who was, has been one of my mentors here in, in Toronto. And um, when I was planning for season two of the podcast, he was like, you know, you should totally get Greg to do it. I was like, I would love to have Greg, but I thought I may not be able to connect with you. So it's really a pleasure to have you on. And um, so let's let's have the beginning, Greg. So how did it all begin for you? How did you get a saxophone in your hand? Um, I would say by default, really. There was no uh, plan. There just happened to be a vacancy in the junior high school you know, wind ensemble. And the, <laughs> the teacher stuck his head in the door and said, hey, does anybody want to learn how to play an instrument? And a friend, my best friend and I, we ran to the band room. <laughs> and there happened to be two cases. There was a smaller case and there was a large case. And of course, people go for the, the bigger case. <laughs> and he reached the bigger case, which happened to be a trombone. So, but not for his agility, I would be a trombonist, right? <laughs> so the smaller case was a clarinet. So that happened to be my first instrument. I played that for almost a year. Then I got my hands on a flute. And then maybe uh, a year and a half after, you know, the initial music study, I got my hands on an alto saxophone. And that's when things really started to make sense because I recognized it as something that was applicable to, you know, popular music and people, you know, recognize it as, you know, a real instrument. Flute and clarinet being more symphonic or concert based instruments, I didn't see the viability even at that age. <laughs> right, and right. so, um, yeah. And so I took to it very rapidly, actually. I mean, I didn't really have that much counseling or any uh, personal instruction because the guy who was the band director was a trumpet player and he taught me the fingerings on you know, clarinet and he taught me the woodwind fingerings. So yeah. I never, I'd never had a real teacher. And, yeah. you know, I just, you know, was very observant and 
and, and a quick study. And so by, you know, a year and a half from, from being introduced, you know, to my first instrument, I was already playing in, in blues bands, little R&B bands and funk and soul bands and stuff. This is, this is quite a while ago. This is 1972. <laughs> so, there, you know, there was no MIDI, there was no sampling or whatever. You had, had to have a horn section. Right. So here, here I was, you know, 13, 14 year old kid in these groups with grown men who were like in their 30s and 40s. So it was a right. great, you know, trial by fire situation. And where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri, which is a very musical place. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it has its own very strong uh, regional sound and, and you know, what, it, you know, characteristics, you know, yeah, you can almost, you can almost, <laughs> you know, in the United States, you can almost tell where somebody's from based on what, upon the way they articulate, mm -hmm. the way they approach music, um, the, the environment that they place themselves in. So St. Louis was a, was a great catapult for me. Yeah, yeah. So I, in that way, how do you feel like if, um, like growing up in St. Louis sort of shaped your musical identity or even like the direction that you took? Well, at that time, again, all of the bars and, and taverns and pubs, they all had live music. And there was a pub on, a, on each street corner, more or less. And um, many of these had organs. They had Hammond mm -hmm. B3 organs. So it was a lot of, you know, funky toe tapping, finger popping, soul jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and a lot of that music was also on jukeboxes. You know, a boogaloo type music, like, uh, song for my father, yeah, Watermelon yeah. Man, Lou Donaldson, you know, Lonnie, uh, Dr. Lonnie Smith, you know, that oh. kind of stuff, Jimmy Smith. So oh. it was kind of the the wallpaper, you know, to my childhood, more or less. Yeah. You know, yeah, this, yeah. this kind of funky soul jazz, groove-oriented R&B wow. atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And, and I know that blues has uh, a really big place in, the, in St. Louis um, City. So oh. what was your relationship with, with uh, just like blues musicians and blues bands? And um... Well, of course, at that time, I wasn't very, um, I wasn't very responsive, you know, to the, to the principles of blues because it sounded like old people's music <laughs> as, as well as jazz. I, I was more uh, interested in, in, in popular uh, affectations. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, R&B, soul, things like that. Yeah. Um, now, I, I will, you know, give you an, uh, a quick anecdote that firmly details, you know, how my my mind's ear was shaped. Yeah. Uh, at that time, you know, around from 1969 to the mid 1970s, my mother worked at a, a record distribution company in St. Louis. So all of the major labels would send her company the new releases the promotional copies and things like yeah. that, you know, and then they in turn would distribute them to all the stores in town. Mm -hmm. So literally every day she would come home with armloads of vinyl wow. of, um, you know, uh, overstock or returns or, you know, things that were undersold promotional items. So we had literally mountains of music. Wow. And, you know, so, of course, I couldn't make a playlist on, on an iPhone because, <laughs> you know, that was, you know, a, a possibility. So we would stack the records on, on, the, on the record player mm -hmm. and make our own playlist that way. Wow. And so I, I developed a very unbiased ear in terms mm -hmm. of accepting various forms of music because yeah. we would listen to whatever she brought, you know, without any, you know, criticism or any, any judgment. 
Yeah. Everything from rock to classical to gospel to heavy, you know, blues, soul, you know, everything. And so that opened opened my 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 mind's ear up and, you know, the possibility of, you know, participating in, in a world of good music. Yeah, that's amazing. I um I often like when I when I hear people share that, I reflect on my own journey with being open um to different sounds from different places and different approaches. Um, you know, I I went through a, a very uh a period of time where I was, you know, very hyper focused on music had to sound like this. And if it wasn't this, it wasn't mm. good, you know. So um I'm at a place now where I'm realizing that that approach comes out of a place where you try to isolate music as a thing unto itself. But when you realize that music is an expression of, as a cultural expression, you realize that uh, if you want to embrace people, you have to also embrace those, uh, the diversity of that expression through music as, as, as well. And so how have, how have, have those experiences and you're coming up to music, you've had an amazing career and still continue to have a music career as a leader, as a sideman, as an educator, how have all of those experiences shaped um, the type of musician you are today? And so in other words, what have you been in pursuit of, you know? Well, you know, the, the fact is once you enter into the professional realm, you, you recognize that, um, the limitations that you impose upon yourself by being into one type of music, you know, how that limits your ability to, you know, to work, yeah. to be, yeah. to be regarded as somebody who is open and willing to, to do different things. Yeah. And it, it, it vastly limits your ability to, to earn a living. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's actually uh, self-destructive to be mm. one track minded, you know, mm. in mute, in, especially in the, in the contemporary arena of music is it's so broad and vast yeah. categories are, are almost, you know, you know, not, you know, not important anymore, Great. but um, you know, I, 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 when I migrated to New York, you know, out of, you know, university and, and conservatory studies, I, I wanted to be someone who both left their mark, you know, in, in whatever environment I, I found myself in and somebody who was sought after, as a specialist who did something that nobody else did, right? You know, you know, somebody who played a saxophone but didn't sound like anybody else, or who didn't negotiate through music like anybody else. You know, for better or for worse. Hmm. I mean, I, I like would rather I would rather be regarded as somebody that somebody really really likes or somebody really doesn't like, <laughs> as, as opposed to somebody say, ah, yeah, so so uh, is okay. You know, yeah. I mean, you you want to leave, you know, an, an impacting you know, resounding influence on whatever you, you, you do. Yeah. Uh, and huh. so, um, you know, I, I endeavored to, to develop that very early on. Some say prematurely, but well, as I was developing as a, as a musician, I was always figuring out how to craft, you know, uh, a sound and, and a vibe because all the people that I champion, that I cherish as he, my heroes, mm -hmm. they have that. Absolutely. They, they have yeah. a personality, a, a definite, you know, stamp. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that they leave, you know, on everything they do. And, uh, I, you know, I would, I would offer that none of it is accidental. I would think that everything that they did was deliberate. You know, that's so interesting. I remember having a conversation with another uh, saxophone player friend of mine. We were talking about, um, from the perspective of like the institutionalization of music education, 
how you know music institutes turn out musicians or graduates mm. every year all right mm. hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. um but let's focus on the saxophone i i see a lot of really amazing saxophone players around just i mean i live in toronto here just a lot um all over the place all over the world and you know jazz is a global phenomenon now um but the element of artistry or being an artist um it's very different than being a musician than being a or being a, a good saxophone player um do you think that that goal of carving out uh well becoming a stylist developing your own personal sound and all of that for me that's very 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 much uh connected to becoming an artist do you think that's attainable for everyone no i don't right. think so right that's, absolutely. that's yeah. yeah absolutely not i mean some people are journeymen you know they're every man they can make every gig they're good readers they they interpret music well they play well in the section they blend well with others and they can play a variety of styles yeah. you know they can play in orchestras pit bands horn sections studio they can do it they could do it all <laughs> however you won't be able to pick them out of a police lineup <laughs> you know <laughs> you know because they don't have you know a strong enough character in their plan that they stand out and you know leave you with something as a takeaway but that's fine because these right. people lar- largely work more than the so-called artists exactly most, most, most artists and stylists and, and innovators and stuff die broke <laughs> you know and, and they, they're, scr- they're scrambling to make their rent every month wow. and yet you know they are unique and you know and these are influencers yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. so uh, I, I think you know we have to you know, straddle the fence these days, you know, and, and recognize uh, how far we're willing to go, how much we're willing to sacrifice and to recognize what's necessary in order for us to, you know, have stability in our existence uh, and still make, make our mark. Yeah. So able to create, yeah, that's always a fine balance. Uh, between- the problem is, the problem is, is that uh, institutions, uh, schools and, and universities and those programs conservatories they don't really they don't bring that subject up right, you know they, right. they give you they give you the particulars of you know composition and and you know the mechanics of playing and having yeah. a good sound and things like this yeah. but they're not they're not really talking about the the, the actualities of music as a lifestyle mm. you know maintaining a budget you know sustenance cooking how are you going to live? <laughs> how are you going to present yourself? Yeah. Uh, doing, doing interviews. How do you yeah. uh, promote yourself, you know, to make yourself available for somebody to hire or to call mm. you? You know, these things, you know, they just give you your degree and kick you out to make room for the next group of incoming students. Right. And now right. you're out here on your own. Like, how, how do I fend for myself? And that is why most recent graduates or people who have been long-term graduates they're, you know, doing something outside of music, you know, mm-hmm. to sustain themselves. So I think this, you know, the business of music as a lifestyle needs to be a, a course, you know, in yeah. these schools that needs yeah. to be developed. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that makes me think, and I'm, I'm trying to go easy on the institutions here because there are a ton yeah. of really good, good ones out there sure, sure, at the sure, same sure. time, you know. But sure. I, it, I'm a, a real fan of mentorship type programs 
Yes. Where students get paired up with mentors, which is kind of like what what happened long ago, or even mm. colleges like Berkeley when it's when they started. Um, it was that sort of like professional where professionals would come to be developed and paired up and so on. Um, we've kind of moved away from that. And I, I want to say that I think we're going to see more of that popping up in the next maybe let's say 10 to 15 years. I, I think so, because I think the colleges are uh, the enrollment is going down and, and, and so on. But, yes. but that makes me think about uh, the thing that's missing is that human connection and music is that living is a living, breathing thing that's kept alive by the people that practice and compose and innovate. Um, and you've no doubt been one of those innovators. Um, so can we talk about, or maybe some of the things that you've been interested in developing as a, like to develop your own personal, a song and, a, and a, an approach? I mean, you've done that in jazz. You've done that um, with making those connections between jazz and hip hop and, and collaborating with different artists. So let's, let's talk about that. Well, I like to call myself um, an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I've always um, wanted to, to, uh, to establish and to maintain an environment for myself that showcased my best attributes. Mm. You know, and, and all the people, again, the people that I admire, they did that. You know, their composition sounded exactly like the way they played. So hmm. whether they were playing their own music or not, whoever was playing it, you know who wrote it, you know, yeah. based upon these characteristics that are, that are customized and built into the music. Yeah. A, monk, a monk composition sounds like a monk composition. Yeah. A John yeah. Coltrane, a Charles Mingus, a Bud Powell, you know, Duke Ellington, these kind of, you know. So, I, you know, I always wanted to create um, a frame. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll be the, the work of art that goes inside that frame. Mm. You know? So, so yeah. even if even if that work of art is in, in, in another frame, meaning somebody else's music or somebody yeah. else's band or somebody else's environment, the work of art maintains its integrity. Oh, you know? I love that concept. So, yeah. So, so in order to do that, you have to um, introspectively look into the musical mirror, more or less, mm -hmm. and see, okay, what are, are, are my defining characteristics? What are my strengths? You know, and... So you have to take those strengths and you have to polish them to a blinding hue. It's like, this is <laughs> my thing. You know, maybe I play trills a lot, you know, or maybe I play these series of intervals a lot, or maybe it's my tone or my sound or my rhythm or, you know, so whatever it is, you have to identify it and you have to maximize upon that. You have to say, okay, this is my thing. This is my calling card. This is what people are going to recognize before. And then you write compositions that showcase that. And you and you deliberately develop that. And so the weaknesses, some of our weaknesses, I mean, they may be almost like ticks and you can't get rid of them if you want mm. to. I mean, if you try, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. You go through all this intense study or whatever, and you listen to a recording and you're still doing that thing. <laughs> That's the thing that you need to be focusing on. Right. You know, right. and so I, I, I look at that and, you know, every <laughs> once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll do some self-evaluation because I record myself regularly when I practice. Yeah. And I'll hear myself doing some things and say, wow, I keep doing that. You know, so I'll write a composition based upon that thing, huh. you know, and, and that's been to a large degree. Huh. Uh, a lot of my creative output is it probably was a mistake or probably was something that was, you know, indeliberate or probably something that I tried to do. And. 
and I missed the mark. So I said, well, instead of me doing this, I'll just do this because I keep doing it anyway. So that's the, str- that's the strength. That's you know. really interesting, Greg. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just reflecting on my, like my own development as a saxophone player. And, um, I think, and I want to just clarify that I don't think what you're saying is, is, is to not go, it's not to fix weaknesses. And that's not what you're saying at all. Right. But it's this idea of reframing, uh, reframing the weaknesses in in, Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, I find that there's a lot of, um, judgment around developing or sounding a particular way um Mm -hmm. especially now in jazz and i think uh that's a a product of of a couple things you know maybe social media the fact that there's sort of standardized education so uh and all of that but i feel like if some of the essence of, of 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 jazz and the music coming from the human experience is that idea of individualism and also humanity in the music. And I think that mechanism you just talked about of reframing those weaknesses kind of takes in consideration the humanity of a musician. Absolutely. Well, yeah. well let's, 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 you know, be honest. Uh, uh, schools, they have to codify the information and make it uh, teachable. Yeah, yeah you absolutely. Know, so, so that it can be graded and, you know, there are le- certain levels and, and, and things can be judged based upon, you know, the rigors of what's necessary to graduate and things like that. So yeah. they have to teach the same material to, to a, a variety of people, uh, regardless of their aptitude, their ability, their background and whatever. Some people are going to su- succeed and persevere. Some people are going to falter because some of this material they may be able to to absorb and to execute with ease. And some people may find it daunting you know and very difficult um but and that's just the way it is you know in schools but you 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 touched upon uh the idea of mentorship yeah you know so i think uh in, in order to augment uh, you know these you know these these regimented studies in schools there also needs to be a pairing uh and of of um of, of students that are in need or in search of, you know, with established elders who can yeah. give them one-on-one uh, criticism, treatment, uh, nurturing, you know, because this is what I did. I mean, once I got out of the institutions, you know, I actively sought out people who I admired and, you know, without any embarrassment or whatever, even if they openly rejected me, I just went to the next person. I mean, when I got <laughs> to New York, I openly sought out. And some of them I, I wasn't able to have an, uh, a direct audience with, but I went to see them regularly. I would go see George Coleman every other night. I would go see Gary Bartz. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would go see Eddie Lockjaw Davis if he was in town. You know, I, I became, you know, friends with Joe Henderson and, and, and Eddie Harris and people like that. And, you know, to the degree that they would call me on the phone and, and I could interview them, you know, more or less. And I could extract the things from them that, that I didn't get in the school. So I, th- I think there's a certain level of fearlessness that's required, you know, in our pursuit of, you know, the golden goose or, or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the pot of gold of information yeah. that, that, that exists. Yeah. I mean, it's out there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Wow. The, you, I, I started to think about the sort of things 
that you've been um you've either popularized or become popular for you know in terms of your your approach so can we talk about your um harmonic or like melodic approach on the saxophone and how you went about sort of developing that okay so when i was a student i used to make regular trips to new york it was you know a very cheap flight or you know a very inexpensive bus ride and i would go down maybe once a month or once every couple of months and I would go to the jam sessions at first. I would, and there was an abundance of them at that at that time. This was around 1981, you know. And uh, so I would go just observe at first. I wouldn't participate. I wanted to see who was who, who was hot, and who was really dealing, and who you know, you know, based upon the reputation, you know, if I could see that you know that they had some shortcomings, and I, you know, I would say, okay, well, yeah. I, I'm not so bad, you know, if this is the man, you know, so, you know, you know, youthful ego or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So then, you know, I, I, I got the, the you know, uh, you know, I started to take my horn and started to go to these sessions, you know, often enough to the degree that the people thought I lived in, in town. They thought mm -hmm. I'd move to New York. That was part of my strategy to be yeah. seen and heard so often that the transition would be smooth and people, you know, didn't think I was a recent yeah, you yeah. Know, migrant. Okay. So that, so, Upon my observation, I recognized that there was this really heavy Charlie Parker, Sonny Stitt, Cannonball Adderley, post-bop, you know, the term that I despise, but th <laughs> that, 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 that kind of language. Yes. You know, it was that, and then it was the post-law scene kind of uh, expression, you know, the, the fire players, you know, the, the more, I don't even like the word avant-garde, but the more, you know, energy yeah. players. Yeah. You know, they, they weren't really coming from Bebop. They were coming from another another yeah. facet, you know, in, in the spectrum, you know. Yeah. And I respect them, too. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I say, man, I want to play with those guys, too. And I want to, you know, swing and I want to play, you know, changes. I want to do all the so-called legitimate things. But I also want to play with the, the so-called so downtown guys, you know, the, mm -hmm. the semi-classical third stream players. I want to yeah. play with, you know, some of the chamber music guys. You know, saxophone yeah. quartets. It was all. I, I wanted to to have to have my foot wet in every arena, you know, yeah. comfortably, and you know, with a level of familiarity, so they wouldn't say, "Oh, this guy is like encroaching on, on our territory." <laughs> I wanted to say, "Yeah, he sounds natural over here too." Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I went to all the different clubs and all the different uh, you know performance spaces and checked out everybody and, and, and kept a tally of who you know were the main uh, fixtures in those scenes. I said, but I said, man, you know, I was a Cannibal Adderley fanatic. I don't know if anybody can hear that now. Maybe if I play a ballad or something, you know, it, it seeps through. <laughs> but uh, I was, you know, I was living, breathing, you know, eating Cannibal Adderley sandwiches for breakfast. You know, <laughs> that was my guy, you know. And uh, I recognized that that wasn't going to take me very far. Hmm. It wasn't gonna, if I wanted to be a well-rounded working musician, you know. So while I was still in Boston, I stopped, you know, listening to alto players completely, you know, for about maybe six months. And mm -hmm. I studied tennis saxophone players, you know, exclusively for a while to try to get a broader sound, to get a, a different level of uh, navigation on the instrument, you know, you know, with the deep resonant lower register. Because a lot of alto players, they, they exist solely in the upper register yeah. with this kind of uh, abrasive sound and, and don't really uh, have that butter sound. Mm. You know, 
you know, the sound that makes people, you know, just swoon when you play yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, slower tempos, you know, yeah. that that is kind of, you know, falling by the wayside because a lot of people are, are, are focusing on Altissimo and all kind of other things. You know? mm-hmm. But OK, I digress. So <laughs> I, I, I did that for a, a number of months to my satisfaction. And then the, the, the real turning point was when I started to transcribe and study exclusively pianists, pianists, oh. guitarists and vibraphones. I transcribed hundreds of, of different solos from various players, uh, primarily because they phrase differently and they don't have to breathe. Right. So their, their, their lines tend to be longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And also I was very curious to, to see if I could somehow adapt a pianistic approach on the saxophone, you know, given that they're polyphonic and they play with two hands. Yeah. How, how can I compress that information, you know, with, you know, uh, uh, an update, you know, to the, to the intervallic system and the rhythms comping, mm-hmm. you know, to simulate comping for myself on the saxophone and also to simulate a two-handed approach. So that took a, a lot of, you know, theorizing and, uh, you know, conceptualizing. But mm-hmm. I, I arrived at, you know, what I thought felt like that approach, you know, a pianistic, vibraphonic, guitaristic approach on a monophonic instrument. And mm-hmm. so that's what happened. I, I, I would write out my own patterns. I would write them out in 12 keys. I would make modifications of those patterns. I would like erase notes and, and, and change the intervals and, and do octave re-registration and displacement. And I came up with my own personal workbook Mm-hmm. of concentrated study that that pulled me away from the traditional recognizable um, trajectory of, of alto saxophone playing. And I was only, what, 21, 22 years old when I was thinking I may have been way ahead of myself, but I really mm-hmm. wanted to, to, to make some kind of uh, impression on anybody who heard me. So I, I thought about these things. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a planner. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very organized. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And it was very, very structured. Yeah. So a big part of the, the, the jazz tradition is having this sort of standard repertoire mm-hmm. that we all work through to develop language and, and all of that. So yeah. with, with you having that, um, having your own unique, uh, basically your own language, personal language and a system that you develop for vocabulary, really. Um, how did you then proceed to take that and work it through? Did you have like standard music you, you were applying it to or were you just trying to develop that sound and then just organically trying to apply it to whatever you were playing? Well, Does that make sense? It's absolutely. Simultaneously, while I'm doing this, of course, I'm playing all the standards as everyone else does. I mean, when I was right. in school, we would have these marathon jam sessions, you know, out of, you know, the real book, which was new at that time. The mm-hmm. real book was new. There was a, a guy who sat out in front of the, the school. He had a, a green army duffel bag and he had <laughs> a dog. The dog had Ray-Ban sunglasses and a, and, a, and a red bandana. Yeah, yeah. He would sit out there with the dog and he said, hey, hey. You want to want to buy a fake book, you know, because it was illegal. Oh. He was he was a he was a a, a a a real book pusher. He was peddling these real books, and, you know, and so now here here's the, you know the dividing line. Those yeah. of us who, who thought that we were 
you know, like on, on a bebop track, you know, like really serious blues swinging, you know, we were dismissive of anybody who had one of those. You know, <laughs> say, you know, and this is, I'm talking about me, John Toussaint, uh, Branford Marsalis, Donald Harrison, mm. uh, you know, people like that, you know, we were, you know, we did sessions, we played sessions and, and like, you have to memorize the songs. You have to yeah, memorize all yeah. the chants and everything. Anybody, you know, standing up with a music stand, reading out of those real books, which is why I can't really understand why people had those 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 um, those fake books on their phones now, and they go to gigs like that. I've seen <laughs> people with, with a music stand with their phone with a, like reading that. I, I I don't understand it. Like, you knew the gig was coming. Why, why didn't you just learn all the music? You know, <laughs> you know these, these songs are hundred years old now. You know, it's like come on. But anyways, so so that was it. I mean, we we did we played the sessions and uh, we we took the tunes through like different keys. We would modulate. You know, even a half step, you know, would throw people off. I mean, you play all the things you are instead of A flat, you go up a half step to A, within, you know, 95% of the people don't want to take a solo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but see, that's what we did regularly, you know, just to, to train ourselves and to have no fear with key signatures. Mm. We would take songs, you know, in, in four, four and, and make them three, four or five, four or seven, you know, just to become familiar with different meters. Mm -hmm. uh, we would take ballads and play them fast. And we would take fast tunes and play them, you know, painfully slow. Yeah, yeah. Just, huh. to, just so you don't become married to any, you know, one way, you know, uh, uh, you know, because, you know, I don't need to hear, you know, Soft Is in the Morning Sunrise or, you know, any of those songs in the same key at the same tempo ever again. I mean, but if I go to someone's gig and they, you know, do an arrangement on them or they, they modify a stylized in, in, in a very personalized way, Mm -hmm. that's interesting that's compelling to me yeah. so this is what we were this is how we thought this is what we were doing and uh meantime in the meantime simultaneously i was trying to figure out you know how am i going to you know personalize what i'm doing so that people will call me for me yeah and what advice do you have for maybe the aspiring professional saxophonist or maybe even a professional saxophonist that's um, trying, just beginning that journey of uh, developing a personal sound, personal melodic approach, or just personal language? Uh, in short, I would say possibly if you reach, you know, some creative impasse or, you know, or any kind of, you know, roadblock in your playing, you're stuck, you don't know what to practice, you don't you don't think that you're uh, progressing or if you're writing a song and you just stuck, you know, can't go any further or if you have any issue, you know, uh, with regards to your development, you know, jot those questions down, mm. you know, and then ask those same questions to, from 10 to 20 people. I guarantee that you have from 10 to 20 different answers. Yeah. You know, That's pretty one or more of those answers is going to be the answer to your question. Yeah, that's pretty much the the that we just said is the catalyst for this podcast. Yeah, because because I, I I really believe that um, if you want success in any in in anything, just get a bunch of people that are that are already doing it and just get their perspective on it, and you'll begin to see those connections. Um, uh, all of it may not help you, but something will. You know, and something will will stick for sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm always open, you know, to exchange 
ideas, even those um, that I don't agree with. I want to mm-hmm. know what makes people tick, how they think. I want to, you know, them to uh, to avail me with their pers- perspectives on things, you know, because I mean, chances are they're going to hit me to something that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. And so I've, I've done that, you know, for you know the greater part of, of, of my professional life. Even still, I do that. I have marathon, you know, telephone conversations, you know, with various saxophone players. Even my students will throw me a question that I may not even know the answer to fully. But I say, oh, you know, let's talk tomorrow and I'll have yeah. an answer. And, um, you know, in, during my early days of New York, in New York, I would, you know, get together with with my colleagues and we would sit around and have listening sessions that we would play you know, records and, and, and tapes, of, you know, live tapes and, you know, rare recordings. And we would talk about it and we would, you know, critique things and we would analyze it. And then we would sit around and try to transcribe and extract things from it. You know, I would regularly go around to the clubs and, 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 and see the elders, buy them a, a beer or a glass of wine and, and sit up sometimes until, you know, the sun, sun came up. They would sit up and indulge me, young me, yeah. And all my questions because they saw me as a serious young man who was earnestly trying to to learn, yeah. you know. So, I mean, there's just there's only one, you know, one thing that that can happen, you know, in, in your pursuit of the information. People can outright refuse you or, you know, not you know, accommodate you. So the best thing to do is to go to the next person. They're fine. And, and I, I want to emphasize that it's, it's really important not to stick to uh, uh, the precedent you know, that's been established on your instrument in your mm. studies. Saxophone players don't need to just study saxophone players, you know, study and transcribe saxophone players, you know, because there's a, you know, a wealth of information on people who play other instruments. For a while, I studied trumpet players, you know, and, and transcribed, you know, Book of Little solos, yeah. Freddie Hubbard solos, and, and Clifford Brown solos, you know, because those three valves, you know, offer a, a, gr- a great deal of information for a saxophone player, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, trying to play, you know, negotiate, you know, that information and, and to interpret it is, is, is invaluable. So the whole thing is it just is to be um, voracious in your appetite, you yeah. know, in, in your pursuit, you know, of information. I, I'd love to chat about, you know, some of your favorite um, experiences or mo- musical moments on and off stage or collaborating with, with, with folks but before we do that I, i'd like to get your perspective um and uh a, a deeper question which is the importance of music um within our culture i think in a postmodern society where everything uh is I shouldn't say everything but a lot of what we do is very fancy and um sometimes not connected to, um, I think what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago and um, there's such a communal sense um, um, within music and everything that, that, that we do um, in places like North America um, and, and larger places, you, you find community in pockets um, as opposed to across big geographical um, spaces. So with all of that and with technology and, and all of that, I, I, I think that sometimes we can lose the sense of the importance of music or, or the, why is music needed within our society? Why, why are artists needed 
within our society. Um, and I, the, the reason I'm asking this to Greg is because I think there's a lot of musicians during this time with the pandemic and it's really hit the music industry hard. And there are a lot of uh, young musicians that might be struggling and second guessing if they should do this. Um, so, you know, somebody like yourself who have been doing it for a while and been through many seasons of shifts in the music industry. So for you, what's the, what's, how, what's the importance of music and the importance of artists creating? Well, for some people, music is, is, is um, craft. For some people, music is life and culture. I mean, it's the very fabric uh, yeah. of their, their existence. Yeah. And for some people, music is product. Mm. You know, and these are the people that appropriate the music and, and, and cheapen it, more or less, because <laughs> they, use it for, they use it for product placement, they use it for promotion and advertising and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, then there you know, are others who look at it as uh, a, a, a very, very personalized way of the expression and a, a suggestion of, of, of possibility. Mm. You know, and then there yeah. are some people that, you know, that that live the music because culturally the music, um, it symbolizes, uh, you know, backgrounds, his, historical reference, um, dialect, uh, geography, things like this. Say, you know, say, for instance, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, which is, you know, the people from the Caribbean, you know, their their attachment to the music. Um, is, is, is closer tie, you know, to, to Africa. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, the, you know, and the drum and different cadences in the music and, 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 and symbolic references inside yeah. that are customized and built into the music. So when you hear these things and when they play these things, they have a, a, a deeper meaning than somebody who's just playing to get paid or, pay, or playing to, to, to make the rent. I mean, mm-hmm. I, talk to people, you know, you know, during my, my trip to Africa or, you know, you know my students and, and friends, you know, uh, in and from the Caribbean, you know, they say when they hear like a certain pattern, they say, oh, you know, when I was growing up, that meant um, there was a celebration, you know, mm-hmm. so had a, a new baby or, 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 you know, even further back, that meant that the, the, the enemy was approaching, you know, let's, you know, you know, get yourself together, you know, sharpen your spears or whatever, or, you mm-hmm. know, the white man is offshore. Watch out, you know, because my cousin, you know, was led away in chains. So, you know, you know, brace yourselves, you know, or, you know, we had a successful hunt. So we're going to have a feast this evening. We're going to have a party, a fiesta, you know. Yeah. So, you know, music had a deeper cultural significance as we've moved away from that. And people, they associate music with things that, you know, are connected to matters of the heart the soul mm-hmm. and to the deeper culture and stuff. Um, things get lost, you know, things yeah. get shrouded and, and the music becomes, it gets appropriated, uh, you know, you know, by people who don't have, you know, its best interests uh, in mind. So those of us that are aware of that, those of us that, um, that understand that, you know, those ties and those connections must be maintained for the music to, to uh, to keep its integrity and you know the the thread you know to our greater culture mm-hmm. you know, we have to you know take it upon ourselves to you know to be you know the the personal institution that that incorporate that into the music 
Yeah. Live music always, you know, uh, contains those characteristics and we have to, you know, verbalize it. We have to be griots mm-hmm. and tell those stories. Yeah. You know, a lot of this yeah. stuff isn't documented, you know, and a lot of, even if it is documented, it's not taught readily. Mm-hmm. Less, you know, you bring it to someone's attention, yeah. you know, yeah, which is, yeah. you know, a big thing that's going on here in the United States. A lot of history has been shrouded and put on a back burner or completely uh, obscured. So we have to take it upon ourselves to, to be the stewards, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the, you know, the promotion of that information, you know, to, to young people, to interested parties. And I'm not saying to only black people, but, you know, just culturally people just need to be aware of uh, the origins. Absolutely. And the significance of, of all, all of these uh, particulars. Yeah. Right? No, you talk, you, you talked just Sunday about uh, remembering the past and, um, and um, telling the stories um, and in some ways, somebody might hear you say that and, and, and say, well, that's such a traditionalist approach. Mm. Um, to, and, and I don't think that anybody who knows your music would describe you as a traditionalist, um, but yet you still value that thing of, of, of um, preserving the, the history and the, what the music is at, at its core. How have you find, found that balance in your own like, creative pursuits as an artist and as a saxophone player? Well, for one, I don't, um, I don't accept tra- uh, tra- being called a traditionalist as a bad thing. Somehow that's a bad word for some yeah. people. <laughs> or you're conservative or you're a traditionalist or you're a historian and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And, and secondly, um, again, I make reference to the people that I admire. Yeah. All of them, you know, climb the stairs, you know, you know, to, to, the, you know, to, to reach, you know, that level that, that made them who they are now, which is, yeah. you know, why we're still talking about them, you know, decades after they, you know, they're passing, yeah. you know, they, they started at a certain place, you know, they, they picked up, you know, certain values. They embraced those, they exhibited those values in their music mm-hmm. and, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, that's just the way it is. That's yeah, just it's way- a continuum. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think anybody, you know, just landed on, on a planet in some, you know, UFO and just had like a style that you know, nobody ever heard of, and it's not based upon anything, and it's not, um, it doesn't reference any so-called traditional values. I mean, at, at at its root, I want everything that I do to be tied, you know, to the the efforts and the output of, of, of my, you know, my, my forefathers, you know, and for yeah. sisters, you know what Absolutely. I mean? It's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. love that. So, I mean, <laughs> as you, as you can, you know, probably tell, you know, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, having, uh, you know, these types of exchanges. I, 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 I'm, you know, I love teaching for one. Yeah. Yeah. And two, I love, you know, to, to talk about music and to, you know, get, you know, various, you uh, uh, perspectives on it, you know, from other people and, 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 you know, maybe through it all, I can impart, you know, some level of wisdom or, you know, or to avail somebody, you know, you know, from my experiences and things like that. I think it's really important. And that's why, you know, I, I, I'm not dismissive of anybody, you know, regardless of level or their style or whatever, because, 
you know, there's something to be extracted from from everything and everybody. I mean, I've learned a lot from people who could barely play. They've asked mm-hmm. me questions out of their, you know, their innocence. They've asked me a question that, you know, you know, esteemed professors haven't asked. <laughs> they, they just didn't know that it was like a, you know, like a far out question. And yeah. you know, it makes me, hmm, nobody's ever asked me that before, you know, so. I said, I'll get back to you in a couple of days, you know, and, you know, things like that are provocative. I mean, I've been like prodded, you know, in, in, in areas and pushed into, you know, areas that I never would have gone to, you know, on my own from children, you know, or from people who, you know, weren't that, uh, that experienced in music. So I don't think we, you know, should, uh, you know, be quick, be quick to dismiss. It's very, very yeah. Yeah. Let's chat about some of like your your favorite experiences, um, musical experiences on stage, um, maybe, maybe with your projects or like just uh, working with other folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, some of my favorite experiences have been as a as a as a, as a side man. You know, during uh, you know during the, the the days of my my early career. Mm. You know, because. Uh, I established a reputation right on, you know, and people say, well, there's, you know, a cat in town and he can play a variety of styles. You know, he has a you know, good sound. He knows a lot of tunes and good attitude. He dresses well. He shows up on time. He's reliable. You know, these things are very important if you want to work. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I got calls from everybody, you know, from, you know, McCoy Tyner to uh, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw. Joe Brackeen, of course, Jim Hall, yeah, yeah, yeah. many years, Andrew Hill, Muhal Richard Abrams. Um, you know, one highlight that really contoured, you know, my thinking as a leader uh, was, you know, my six, maybe almost seven years with Jack D. Jeanette from 1985 to, uh, you know, to, um, yeah, it was like 91, 92, you know, something mm-hmm. around there. Because, um, you know, just the, the, his liberal attitude, you know, and, and the way he, he picked his side men. He didn't pick side men just so he could tell them what to do. He picked right. people, who, you know, who uh, exhibited characteristics that he thought would augment the music. Mm-hmm. You know, now, no matter what anybody else thought of these people, you know, he would put these people together almost like misfits. People who... <laughs> Who existed on the fringes, on the periphery of the scene, or whatever. You put them with other people who may or may not have been well liked, just to see what that would happen. He directly got that from from Miles Davis. Miles Davis would hire Coltrane and Red Garland, who people thought was a you know, cocktail, you know, pianist, or you know, J- Philly Joe Jones, who people thought was unreliable and they didn't really like what he played, and, you know, or you know, all these kind of people. And he would put them together and have these masterful groups. And mm-hmm. Jack did that. So I said, you know, once I start you know, going, put myself out there as a leader, I'm going to, you know, find people who, who have that thing, that it factor, whether mm-hmm. or not they're popular or not. And, mm-hmm. you know, there have been some misfires, but <laughs> largely, you know, it was, you know, it was a great mixture. I, li- I like to call them uh, recipes, you know, me mm-hmm. finding ingredients, you know, just for the right recipe, you know, because yeah. sometimes you have some brilliant people, you know, they're renowned, they're famous, they're winning the polls and everything, but they just don't blend well with other people. You know, either, you know, their ego makes them want to be the, you know, the highlight of the ensemble. They play too loud or they, mm-hmm. they play too many chords, you know, mm-hmm. or drummer, you know, it's just it's just too busy. You know, they just don't they don't fit well. So that's why I've, I've liberally uh, delved into the youth pool. I've gotten a lot of people 
out of colleges and universities. One, you know, they're eager to be there. Two, they practically memorize all the music. And, you know, three, they try, you know, a lot harder and they, they, they go the, you know, the, the extra distance to give you what you need. So, mm-hmm. you know, that I would say, um, um, getting together, you know, with the, with the host of my peers and, uh, establishing a, a musician's, uh, artist collective, you know, in the mid to, to, to late 1980s, yep. it was Steve Coleman and yep. Jerry Allen, Terry, mm-hmm. Marvin Smitty Smith, yep. uh, Robin Eubanks, you know, we, we, we organized a, a collective called the, the M-Base Collective in yep, Brooklyn. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we did this because, you know, all of us, you know, were, were side persons, you know, with other groups. I mean, Jerry was playing with Ornette Coleman and Steve was playing with uh, Dave Holland. I was playing with Jack DeJanette. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Lane was playing with everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to, uh, to get together on a regular basis, you know, to write music and to include... Uh, um, you know, characteristics, you know, that were important to us in our, in our makeup, because we thought that, you know, there was a push backwards, you know, for, you know, everybody was talking, calling us young lions and things like that. Wanted us to play all straight ahead music. Record companies were hitting on everybody, you know, to, to play, you know, be swinging, you know, and that's cool, you know, because we, we love that music too, but what about the music that, that had other elements. What about, you know, West African based music? You know, what about music from the Caribbean? What about uh, Latin jazz? What about soul and funk and swing and hip hop and all? We wanted, you know, a recipe that was the embodiment of all these things that we liked and wasn't, you know, uh, dismissive of any of it. So that's yeah. what that was about. So that was a, 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 you know, a high point in my development because I was able to feed directly off of the, the triumph of the people that I, that I really liked. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, mm-hmm. You've done some collaborations with um, hip-hop uh, artists as well. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? I think there's a, probably a, a, a large group of, of the audience that might be uh, coming at music, uh, having grown up in the, in, the, in the 80s, 90s, that, sure. that might be, um, that may not necessarily see those overt connections or know that somebody like yourself have mm-hmm. lent their, their voices to, to, to that, you know, style. And so. Well, in, in the mid to late nineties, eighties, uh, all, all the way up into the, you know, the early nineties. Um, I used to contract musicians for a, a large number of New York based hip hop artists. Okay. So, cause what happened was, you know, sampling became a very lucrative enterprise for the people who did those records uh, initially. So they started mm-hmm. to charge, you know, these, these hip hop producers crazy money for, you know, a six second sample or, you know, the, wow. you know, it was basically, you know, their, their management and the attorneys. Now, I mean, they would charge people, you know, like five figures for something that was like, you know, very, you know, and then record companies started to, to employ people, you know, they had rooms of people with headphones on doing sample identification. And so they would go after these, these hip hop producers, you know, for sampling something, you know, without getting it clear. Right. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. So they would, you know, a lot of these people knew, you know, I lived in Brooklyn at the time, you know, so they would call me and I would take musicians into the studio and we would do sample replication. 
we would like play these samples and we would change the bass line a little bit. We mm-hmm, might mm-hmm. change the chord. We might change the horn section a little bit. Then we would dust up the sample, you know, with, with scratches and popcorn and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and make it sound like an old record. So then yeah. it was a new, new recording and then they didn't have to pay anybody but us. And right, it was very, right, right. very lucrative because hip hop right. was a big thing. So, you know, and it was a cash business. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. that was great. So that, that got my foot in the door, you know, with, with a lot of these hip hop artists. And um, so I signed with the Blue Note Records in 1989 mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, did a recording that came out in 91. So in, in 93, I, you know, I just wondered to myself, what would it sound like, you know, if, if, you know, contemporary I- improvised music, you know, also known as, you know, I don't like that word. Uh, <laughs> if that and, and hip hop got together and had a baby. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? What would that baby sound like? You know, I mean, you know, if we can meet in the middle and shake hands and have equal parts uh, in terms of sonic balance, mm-hmm, you, know, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted my live band you know, to interact, you know, with, with some hip hop artists. Is that what you were trying to explore on, on 3D lifestyle? That's exactly what I was trying to do. So, yeah. you know, I had, and so I did some, some, some gigs first, you know, I had, you know, piano, bass and drums and myself on saxophone and I got a DJ and then I got some MCs, you know, and then I said, wow, this, this is working really well. And I wanted the MCs to, um, to rap melodically, not just in a monotone pitch. And I also yeah. wanted their the content of what they're talking about to embrace you know what you know what was important to me and not necessarily murder and mayhem mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and, and drug dealing and that. I wanted them you know to reference you know some of the, the great elders you know in, in the music. Yeah. And so that's you know that 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 gave birth you know to that project. And yeah. so uh, I, I had done some some things you know with you know producers and stuff. So I sought out you know Tribe Called Quest and Ali Shaheed Muhammad and you know people like that. Yeah. Um, and I got, you know, I love Public Enemy. You know, they were my favorite group. So Bomb Squad and yeah, yeah. Know, Eric Sadler and Street Element. And then, you know, the follow up recording, which was called Black Book, I got uh, uh, you know, CL Smooth, you know, because I love Pete Rock and CL Smooth. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I also used their engineers. I went to their studios to record oh. you know, some of the stuff. And I also got the, the mastering engineers to master it, to give it, you know, like the bigness, you know. That makes yeah. sense. I mean, like when I listen to that album, there's so many layers in the music. Mm-hmm. It's like it sounds like the, the grit and the vibe of like a hardcore hip hop album. But then the, the melodic um, content and the, like the sophistication of like some pop language in, in yeah. there, too. And your 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 own unique uh, melodic approach It's just like. You can almost like turn your turn your ears to the side, just just, just to hear the different layers of what's happening in, in the music. Um, I mean, well, I, I, I was I was I was trying to alter my phrasing to almost phrase like a, you know, like somebody was rhyming, like a rapper. Right. So, that, right. so the, the, the takeaway from that project was that it reinforced my feel. Mm. It, re- it reinforced, you know, how I embrace the beat because people that, that rap, they're you know, way behind the beat. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, just instinctively, and so that that yeah. it really my, my my phrasing changed behind that, and also mm. we tuned some of the samples so that they wouldn't you know, there wouldn't be this, this sonic clash of, of samples you know, as you hear with a lot of people who don't know keys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, had to, I had to play in it, and I couldn't 
play inside that if you know you <laughs> had a sample from one record or a sample from something else and, and they just created this yeah. this you know this this collision so yeah so yeah, so it, it had to you know uh, have a melodic you know component yeah. to it as well. there there aren't many artists that are doing that sort of in deep uh, in depth sorry um cross pollination with jazz and hip hop at least jazz artists that that is i mean i think about soweto kinch um and yeah. out in london um somebody like terence martin maybe mm-hmm. um um but you know what it's i, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit you know i've had such a good time chatting with you you here and may, maybe sometime in the future we could do a part two of of of, of this whatever um, you need okay amazing i want to um wrap up this conversation for for, for, for this um, episode um, and just shift into some rapid fire questions. Um, So just give me like short phrases, one or two answers, and then then we'll end with the, with the three, two, one segment. So what do you think about when you, when you, when you hear, when you think about Bird? I think about how music sounded before Bird and how music sounded after Bird. (laughs) He was was that, socially and globally significant. Amazing. Um, what do you like most about, or what did you like most about the scene in, in New York when you were growing up? I, I liked the idea that um, we, could, we could do club hopping on a nightly basis and we could hit a, you know, an assortment of clubs and they would let us in. You know, we were young, we were broke, but they would let us in <laughs> because a lot of the clubs had three sets. So the last set was sparsely populated and they would let us in. Maybe not on the weekends, but we can get in and get an up close and personal view of a lot of our heroes on a nightly basis. And there were a, a, a ton of jam sessions too. So you can go work it out. Okay. You know? mm-hmm. Small chamber with hard read or big chamber with soft read? For me, big chamber with soft read. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. cool. Um, I would like you to share three albums that have been influential for you, two saxophone players that have been influential for you, and then leave the audience with one piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Okay, three albums. Uh, one has been um, this is a um, Duke Ellington Indigos. You know, to just listen to that all the way through, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, Charles Mingus. Mingus Aum. Mm. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, three, let's see. Um, I'll just put it out there. Andrew Hill, Smokestack. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. yeah. yeah. What about two saxophone players that have been influential? Ooh, that, that, that could take a while, but I, I'll say <laughs> Earl Bostic. Okay. Wow. Earl Bostic. Um, Joe Henderson. Okay. Wow. Wasn't expecting those two names, but very, very cool. And let's leave leave us with one piece of advice. Um, I would like for our listeners to adapt the identity of that of a sponge, Mm. a musical, social, intellectual, and informational sponge, meaning that you're absorbing as much as you possibly can from every possible resource, yeah. you know, without bias and without judgment. And mm-hmm. to take that, that information, that gained information, and to filter it and to, to incorporate 
that which is useful to, you know, to your pursuit, yeah. you know, and not to discard the other, you know, information, you know, put that aside because you may have to refer to it later after you've lived a little bit. And after you've learned a lot, you will recognize that that, that other information, you just didn't understand it at that time. Yeah. 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 You weren't ready for it yet. That's great. That's great. Well, I, I definitely think I would love to have you back for part two. There's so many questions I still have and things that we could explore um, sure. even more. But it's been a pleasure having you, um, having this conversation with you. Um, how can people stay in contact with you or find you online, maybe? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm one of the, the rare people in my generation who, you know, who readily embraces social media just in terms of uh, immediate access. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so at, at Greg Osby on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, Instagram. I just joined TikTok. Nice. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on everything. I'm everywhere. Okay. And then yeah. your website is GregOsby.com? GregOsby.com. And also uh, my, my label is InnerCircleMusic.com. Yeah. I love to talk about that next time we, we, um, we, we chat just as um, starting an indie label and, and, the dynamics of the shift in the music industry and all of that, you know, for um, upcoming artists. So we leave all of that for part two. Enjoy the rest of the day, Greg. Thanks so much. Um, uh, If you're watching, if you're listening on Spotify, thanks so much for listening. And um, I'll catch you on the next one. Take care.